You're listening to The Driven, the podcast that gives you the news and the views, the ins and the outs on electric vehicles. The Driven is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy, One Step Off the Grid and The Driven Websites. Hello and welcome to the second episode of The Driven Podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. Well, our first episode was with Tony Sieber from Stanford University, the futurist who gave a fascinating outlook into what the electric vehicle future might be, and it got a fantastic response, and I do thank you for that. I hope our second episode is just as exciting and just as interesting. It is with Alan Finkel, Australia's chief scientist. Alan has had a long association with electric vehicles. He was the chief technology officer for the company called Better Place about a decade ago. He owns two electric vehicles himself, a Nissan Leaf and a Tesla, and he recently presented a report on the hydrogen economy to the energy state, state and federal energy ministers, and this discussed the prospect of renewable hydrogen and particularly the use of fuel cell electric vehicles in the future. It's a fascinating interview. I do hope you find it interesting. Chief Scientist Alan Finkel, thanks very much for joining this podcast. Giles, my pleasure. Tell me about battery electric vehicles, when, or electric vehicles in general. When was the first time you got attracted to them? It, it's hard to grow up as a techie type person and not be interested in them for a long time. But my first serious engagement was when I heard about a company called Better Place, which was an Israeli company that was determined to make the driving experience easier, rid the world of its dependence on oil. And it saw that this is back in 2006 or seven when they started, they saw the biggest problem as being range anxiety, that people weren't getting enough range and didn't have a convenient way of extending that range. So Better Place's philosophy was battery exchange. They raised a lot of money in Israel and America. They started a Better Place Australia entity around about 2008, and I got fairly excited by that. And a little while later, I contacted the chief executive, Evan Thornley. We had a chat, and I was busy on other things, but I agreed to join on a part-time, long-term basis as the chief technology officer. And in that first year, I had an opportunity to drive a Tesla Roadster. Now, the Tesla Roadster is significant because it is the first vehicle that kind of reimagined electric cars. Up until then, they were plodding devices. Despite the fact, it was golf buggies and things, weren't they? Yeah. So they were thought of. Most people thought of them as golf buggies. But I have to point out to you, in the 1890s, 40% of the cars on the road in America were electric vehicles. It's amazing to think, isn't it? Mm. But there were only about 4,000 cars on the road in the the 1890s. (laughs) And then they got completely displaced after oil was discovered in the early 1900s, like oil out of the ground. So so it was the distribution, wasn't it? The distribution of the refuelling, yes. And we can come back to that. But in 1901, an electric car was the first car in the world to break the 100-kilometre land speed barrier. I did not know that. It was called Jamais Content, I Am Never Content, yes. driven by a Frenchman. And then really nothing happened. They were golf buggies. There was an aborted, aborted attempt perhaps by General Motors in the, 18, in the 1990s. Everybody thought disparagingly of them. And the Tesla Roadster 
helped us to reimagine what an electric car can be in the same way that the iPhone introduced by Steve Jobs, I think in 2007, totally reimagined what a smartphone is because smartphones had existed since about the mid 1990s, but they just weren't fun. They weren't powerful. The mm. iPhone just totally changed the landscape in the way that Tesla did. Hmm. And when, when, so when did you get your first electric vehicle? I got my first electric vehicle in 2013, so I've had it for five years now. It's a Nissan Leaf, and I still got it. And I keep that in my garage in Melbourne. I think, Giles, you know that I live in Melbourne, but work in Canberra, so I have an apartment in Canberra, and in Canberra I've got my second electric vehicle, a Tesla. Fantastic. Look, it sounds like a personal question about how do you charge your vehicle, but I think it's one of those things that a lot of people who don't own electric vehicles um, are really interested in because they wonder, well, how am I going to charge my electric vehicle? Am I just going to sit it at home? Am I going to use a normal PowerPoint? Am I going to use a special charger? What do you do? Tell us about your Leaf in Melbourne and your um, and your Tesla in Canberra. So in both cases, I plug them into a wall outlet, the kind of wall outlet where you plug in your kettle. Well, to be clear, in Canberra, I literally plug it into the socket that runs the roller door in the garage, and it's a 10 amp socket, just like you would have in your kitchen. And in the garage here in Melbourne, I've got a 15 amp socket, which is a slightly more highly rated socket, but nothing unusual. And I plug it into that. It's so much more simple than people tend to believe. Because a lot of people think about range anxiety, they think about, oh, it's going to take forever to charge up my car. How do you manage your trips and your driving around and just your sort of, you know, just, just your little, you know... So, look, just the majority around. of the driving you do is city driving, and it's just never an issue. Uh, the Nissan Leaf is what I call a Generation 3 battery electric car, Generation 1 being the ones from the 1890s, Generation 2 being the, 18, the 1990 car that General Motors brought in, the EV1, and it just didn't have range or capacity. Generation 3 is a series of cars that were released in the 2011-2012 period that aimed at 100 miles for the American market, which is 160 kilometres for the other places in the world. They're Generation 3. Now, for what my wife and I tend to drive in the city, 150 kilometres, just fine. So um, the Nissan Leaf in Melbourne, we would plug it in every, say, second days to get a recharge. Mm -hmm. uh, my Tesla, when I'm driving it in Canberra, um, Canberra's small, and it's got a 400, over 400 kilometre range. And I, I'm not there in the, on the weekend, so I plug it in every second or third week on a Friday night. And when I come back on the Monday morning, it's fully charged. That's the wonderful. only difference when you're at home, the only difference between high power charging and low power charging is, you know, whether you can do it in the same evening or whether you're doing it overnight. And if you're charging at home, it's, it's really not an issue. And you can get more powerful charging systems at home. So a standard wall outlet is 10 amps. It's a bit over two kilowatts. Mm -hmm. It's not that difficult to get a 50 amp setup which takes you to 10 kilowatts the mathematics is very simple if like me you've got an 85 kilowatt hour battery and you're charging at 50 amps which is 10 kilowatts it takes eight and a half hours to go from a completely empty 85 kilowatt hour battery to a full 85 kilowatt hour battery and that's mm. fine that's an overnight charge now that would be just terrible if you were doing long distance driving so when I drove from Canberra to Sydney, 
which is 300 kilometers, it's no problem at all. Uh, I can easily get there without stopping to recharge. And then after doing some things in Sydney, I went to a public Tesla recharging station, plugged it in, went with my wife, we got a quick lunch, came back about an hour later, and the car was full and ready to go. Yeah, I did the same thing. I drove a, a Model S uh, from Canberra to Sydney and I didn't need to recharge, but I thought I'd do so just for the experience. And I stopped off at Goulburn, went in, got a takeaway coffee. And by the time I came back about 10 minutes later, or probably 15 by the whole round trip, um, it had added about 150, almost 200 kilometres of range. So um, really quite easy. But um, yeah. And, um, and the speed of Charles, the speed of charging um, is potentially, potentially getting even faster. So Porsche has announced a car called the Mission, which has, I, I believe, about a 90 kilowatt hour battery, but ha has extraordinarily high power charging capability. And so now manufacturers are building quick charges at the 350 kilowatt power level. 350 kilowatts can charge a 90 kilowatt hour battery, which is a big battery. Mm. It can charge a 90 kilowatt hour battery in about 15 minutes. Wow. The car will probably slow itself down when it gets to about 85% because batteries are not happy being quick charged for the last 10 to 15%. Mm -hmm. But you can get 85% of a 400 or a 450 kilometer range in 10 or 15 minutes with these new generation quick charges. That's really interesting. Well, I, I, we're just seeing fan, fascinating developments there. And, and, and we're starting to see now some more models coming into Australia, albeit not very cheap yet, but getting down towards $50,000. We're starting to see some Ionics and some Renault Zoe's and possibly the Tesla Model 3 um, coming in next year. And I think um, the next generation Leaf as well, I think is going to be unveiled in about a month's time. So that's all pretty exciting. What do you see as the sort of take-up of electric vehicles in, in, in Australia? And um, I know you want to speak about sort of hydrogen fuel cells, um, and we'll get onto that later, but just sort of, you know, just the, just the market for EVs, where do, you, where do you see it going? I think it will be strong. Uh, there's no question that, surprisingly, Australia is an absolute laggard in the uptake of electric vehicles at the moment. So in the leading uptake country in Norway, uh, the last time I looked there, the new car sales were about 40% electric. Yes. And in Australia, it's much less than 1%. But I think that it's due to a number of reasons. There they have some government incentives and they have uh, an approach to um, positively engaging in the decarbonisation agenda in a way that we don't have here. Mm. But there's another big reason. The Gen 3 cars work fine in many European countries, but in Australia, people do drive long distances, and even if they don't on a regular basis, they do occasionally. And even if they don't, they always want the ability to do so. Yes. So the Gen 3 cars just psychologically aren't working in Australia. But the Gen 4 cars, the Ionics and the Nissan Leaf, uh, the second generation Nissan Leaf and the uh, Tesla Model 3, uh, they are coming in with around about 400 kilometres and above. So instead of being Gen 3, aiming at 150 kilometres, that's 150, these cars are, are aiming at 400 kilometres or more. And my personal guess is that that will transform the attitude of Australians to electric cars. Because other than range, 
you get the convenience if you have off-street parking and the vast majority of Australians do but not all but if you've got off-street parking you get the convenience of never having to you know a detour on the way home to go to a petrol station you just charge at home you plug in at night every second night every third night the same way you do your phone it's extremely convenient you get just stunningly responsive performance it's a pleasure to drive an electric powered vehicle it's it's so much more exciting you feel so much more connected than in a petrol or diesel powered mm. vehicle you were moved to write a, um, a, 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 a an opinion article in the Sydney Morning Herald earlier this year um, lamenting some of the naysayers about electric vehicles what prompted you to write that oh there was a lot of talk about Gosh, if you took a, te- you know, it was public talk, public talk that if you took a Tesla Model 3 and you plugged it into Melbourne, that the emissions per kilometre would be worse than if you took a standard Toyota Camry and drove a, a Toyota actually it was a Toyota Corolla that they were comparing it to and Mm -hmm. and drove that petrol car. And I felt that it was important to uh, clarify that. Um, It was a poor comparison for a number of reasons. First of all, a Tesla Model 3 is a very big car and significantly bigger than a Toyota Corolla. Second of all, I don't think it's appropriate to take a worst case example and look at a car plugged into Victoria where we still have a lot of brown coal electricity and make your determination on that. At the very least, one should do the determination based on the national grid average emissions because we're looking at an an Australian opportunity. And when you look at the national grid average emissions, which are much better than Victoria's, even the big Tesla is significantly better than the Toyota Corolla. If you are going to be selective, instead of being selective and saying, plug it in in Melbourne, why don't you be selective and say, plug it in in Hobart? Well, in Hobart, the electricity system has such low emissions because it's mostly wind and hydro, the electric car absolutely, absolutely looks spectacular. But the overriding reason is that we're talking about a technology of the future. Fewer than 0.1% of the cars on the road or 0.2% of the cars on the road in Australia are electric. And even if we made an extraordinary commitment to going electric now, it would be 15 to 20 years before more than half of all new car sales were electric. And then there's another 10 years till the older petrol cars come out of the system because cars have an average life of 13 or 14 years. Mm. So... It's not until 2050 that electric cars will have will represent the majority of the cars on the road and start to have a significant impact. And Giles, I would think that by 2050, the average emissions in the Australian electricity grid will be much improved on where they what? are today. One can only hope so. One can only hope so. Um, extraordinary thing, you touched on this very briefly in the Finkel Review report last year that you, you delivered about electric vehicles and the ability for electric vehicles and the batteries to provide a resource that can be used for the grid. And I know there has been some discussions about it and um, the, the Australian Energy Market Operator is looking at it. At the time, I think you didn't think there was much in the way of sort of working technologies, commercial technologies. But do you see that as a resource? Because I think if, if, if you actually add up the some of the forecasts for the electric vehicle uptake over the next 20 years and you multiply them by the potential battery size, it's a significant resource. It's about 450,000 gigawatt hours, I think. Um, Can we marshal that for the benefit of the grid? So your number's right. Um, It's it's three, four, 
100 gigawatt hours, which takes you up into the snowy hydro 2.0 territory. It's, it's terrific. Uh, but there are two reasons why I'm not optimistic that that will be a resource that we can actually tap into. Uh, one is that the manufacturers are not keen on putting two-way power flow into their cars. So if the cars are designed to be charged, they're not designed to send their power back out of their battery into their house. Mm. And there's a very legitimate reason for the manufacturers. They're on the risky edge of the learning curve where they're selling cars using new battery technology and giving it a warranty. The batteries are getting a warranty for eight or 10 years. And the lifetime of a battery depends very much on how many times it's cycled up and down and how many watt hours are pulled in and out of it. And so if they um, restrict you to using your battery for the next 10 years, purely for traction, for driving your car, for a typical car that might be three or 400 equivalent full cycles of the battery. But if they allow you to plug it in on a daily basis and take power or energy out of the grid, store your battery and then put it back into the grid, then over that 10-year period, the battery might do 1,500 or 2,000 equivalent full cycles mm. and completely collapse below the warranty level. So they're not keen on doing it because it would take them into uncharted territories and quite possibly into massive warranty claims unless mm. they excluded the warranty if you're using it for that purpose, in which case you wouldn't be happy as a driver. So it's difficult. The second reason is human behavior. Giles, can I ask you, how often do you fill up your car with petrol? Once a week on average. And what triggers you? Is it the orange light on the dashboard? Pretty much. That's typical. So you don't go every day so that you're maintaining your fuel tank on full. And similarly, I don't plug in our Nissan Leaf at home or the Tesla in Canberra just because I'm 10% down or just because I've arrived home or I've arrived at work or anything else like that. I only plug it in when I need to, when it's down to a quarter or thereabouts of the full capacity. So human behavior, I don't think it's such that people will, every time they're not driving the car, plug it in. Uh, the people who believe in this future quite logically say, look, on average, cars are only being used and on the road two hours a day, so 22 hours a day, they're not being used. If they were plugged in, they could be used as a resource. Uh, but, but where are they? I can't imagine people doing it. Yes, yeah. We've mostly been talking about battery electric vehicles, but you're also very interested in the fuel cell and hydrogen vehicles. I'm not too sure what the best description of it is. You um, last week delivered a report, or a couple of weeks ago, to the Cardiac Energy Council. I think it was by the Australian Academy of, of, of Advanced Learning, or the. Um, I've forgotten the exact name of it, but, but it was quite a significant report about the opportunities of hydrogen in Australia, and it talked about the um, potential for exports of um, hydrogen, and particularly renewable hydrogen, in mass quantities overseas to Asian markets. It talked about the opportunities for hydrogen as a storage um, for the electricity grid in Australia, but it also talked about the possibilities in transport. Tell us more about that, and where does a hydrogen fuel cell fit in? Because I think a lot of people have dismissed it as a as a, um, as a rival to battery vehicles for 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 personal cars. But um, you think I think um, that there is an opportunity there in some part of the mistakes. Um, so I delivered a report titled Hydrogen for Australia's Future to the National Energy Ministers on the 10th of August, a few weeks ago. And 
it's looking at the spectrum of opportunities for hydrogen across the economy, but it has a strong focus on the export opportunity because Japan and Korea, through a strategic approach, have declared that they will become large hydrogen importers because that is the only practical way that they can decarbonise their economies. So their need is our opportunity. As we develop our capacity to make or produce clean hydrogen for that export market, there's a spillover opportunity to use that for domestic benefit as well. Your specific question is about hydrogen for transport. Um, the first thing to say here is to make it very clear that a fuel cell vehicle should never be called that. It should be called a fuel cell electric vehicle. It's an FCEV, just like a battery vehicle should be called a BEV, a battery electric vehicle. Because whether your energy is stored in hydrogen, in the chemical bonds between the hydrogen atoms in a tank in your FCEV, or stored in the lithium ions in the electrodes of the battery, at the end of the day, you'll get electricity coming out of your storage mechanism and through a converter, inverter, and that electricity will drive an electric motor. And really the electric motor in a fuel cell electric vehicle is no different than the electric motor in a battery electric vehicle. Hmm, that's interesting. What about the uptake then? What, what about the cost? Do, do fuel cell electric vehicles match battery electric vehicles, I Look, think? At, at the moment, historically, they've been more expensive, but there's a drive from the Japanese and Korean manufacturers uh, to produce production electric vehicles. They're a long way behind in terms of number of cars sold, the battery electric vehicles, but Toyota's got a production vehicle called the Prius. Um, Hyundai's now got a second generation production vehicle called the Nexo. Mm -hmm. And... I am fortunate enough to be one of the few people in Australia who's driven both. Um, the Nexo just recently came in and I had a chance to drive it off-road because it's not registered for anybody other than the Hyundai engineers to drive it on the road. And look, they're very, very good cars. The question is two questions. One is price. Can they compete? At the moment, they're still at the pricey end, but no more pricey than the high-end electric cars. So um, I think they have a chance. The competitive advantage in particular of the Hyundai Nexo is that it has an 800 kilometre range per wow. full tank. The um, Mirai is no slouch. It's got a 500 kilometre range. So they're both very good in terms of range. And in principle, you can refuel them very quickly. But we are suffering a chicken and egg problem in Australia because we don't have refueling stations and people are not inclined to invest in refueling stations until we've got cars and companies are not inclined to bring in and people not buying the cars until we've got refueling stations. So when I presented the report on hydrogen for Australia's future to the national energy ministers, uh, I did suggest that one of the things they could consider to kickstart that um, transport industry is to invest alongside or work at least alongside industry and state governments uh, to build a small startup refueling network. Mm -hmm. And where do you think they might do that? Well, that is something that has to be planned out. And a lot of people want to look at that. The Hydrogen Mobility Association, which was formed approximately a year ago, um, is starting an exercise to do some mapping on that. And I've been asked by the 
energy ministers to come back with the first step towards a national hydrogen strategy. And of course, one of the significant pieces of work that we would do if it's approved in the development of a strategy is try to come up with an, an efficient mapping of where the initial stations should go. In your report, you actually note that um, hydrogen, um, hydrogen electric vehicles, uh, fuel cell electric vehicles, could be very popular for fleet owners and also for heavier transport. So you looked at trucks and um, you even looked at trains as well, I think. We did. Um, in France, they've got some prototype uh, hydrogen trains that are running, which is fantastic. The big excitement at the moment around the world is on semi-trailers, big trucks that can carry a 40, you know, pull a 40-foot container. And Toyota has a hydrogen-powered semi-trailer and I'm not sure exactly, but I think it's a, about a 500 kilometer range. There's a company called Nikola in America, and you've got to think about the name. Nikola is the first name of Nikola Tesla. So you might Indeed. want to think about why they chose the name Nikola to make a hydrogen vehicle. <laughs> but moving on, um, they now have a hydrogen powered semi-trailer prime mover that can pull a 40-foot container and drive almost 2,000 kilometres on a single fuel tank. Well, that's, that's impressive. It is impressive. I think, the, I think the refueling time, it's a big tank, the refueling time is a touch over 20 minutes. Change the drivers, well, it can get back on the road. So that sort of fits into those sort of fleets of trucks, and it could fit in fit into fleets of smaller vehicles for fleet owners, etc. So um, and, and and it'd be less less onerous um, on the um, infrastructure too, wouldn't it? Uh, there's no doubt about that. If you were concentrating, if you were concentrating purely on uh, large vehicles like that, you could get away with a very small number of high-capacity refueling stations. Um, next step up is to look at fleets where the cars are coming back to base, and so yes, you'd need more refueling stations, but not all that many. It's only when you're looking at hydrogen electric vehicles for the general population on mass that you start to need a lot of refueling stations but the early adopters uh, tend to self-select as being in a city in a location where they're not going to be that far from a refueling station going back to your test drive with the nexo what was the difference between driving a hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicle and um, one of your battery electric vehicles so not a lot um, they're both completely silent they're both powerful um, it's hard to compare to a Tesla because the Tesla Model S isn't powerful it's extremely powerful <laughs> so the the Nexo is a very powerful electric car um, more powerful than most if not all petrol cars that I've driven but to be honest it's not as powerful as the Tesla but it is more than enough and it's an SUV so it's a very practical family car Hmm. So, so it has the same sort of um, it has the same sort of attributes, sort of completely silent and and emissions free, and and responsive. There's something magical about an electric car, whether it's hydrogen fueled electric car or a battery powered electric car. When you touch the accelerator, the car just moves. Yes. Think about it. If you're driving a, a petrol car, especially if it's got a turbo, when you touch the accelerator and you push it down, there's a delay of it tenth maybe a fifth or more of a second before the car really starts to respond to you pressing the accelerator when you touch the accelerator of an electric car 
the response is in terms of biological sensation instantaneous it's it's one or two milliseconds and the car is responding a millisecond is a thousandth of a second so one or two milliseconds and the car is beginning to respond now you're not consciously thinking about that but i've got to tell you somehow it makes the driving experience more pleasant it's lovely Mm. Before we go, um, you talked about how Australia's sort of dragging behind some other countries in the uptake of electric vehicles of, of all types. What sort of policies do you think could be adopted to hurry that along or to encourage um, this sort of transition? Giles, it's a contentious area, and so I'm not going to respond directly. I will point out that in other countries where there's been strong uptake of electric vehicles, there have been a variety of policies. Uh, there's financial incentives for people through cash rebates and uh, tax, longer-term tax rebates. Um, and then there's practicality incentives in the sense that governments are investing in the roadside quick charging to make highway driving more practical. So there are plenty of examples overseas that we can look at if we feel that we want to do something to accelerate the uptake. I have one final question and it just reminded me because I saw you at the Byron Writers Festival when you were talking about um, artificial intelligence and um, the subject got on to autonomous vehicles mm -hmm. and uh, last week in this podcast we interviewed Tony Sieber um, from Stanford University who has a view that um, come in a decade or roundabout um, virtually all transport particularly in cities will be with autonomous driving and shared vehicles and um, private ownership will actually be quite limited. What's your view on autonomous vehicles and this idea of shared mobility? If I can split the answer, my view of autonomous vehicles is I'm excited, I'm looking forward to, in my more elderly, doddering days, having um, access to either a shared or a private chauffeur-driven limousine, but there'll be no human involved, so that would be wonderful. Uh, I do believe the predictions that accidents will be down, fatalities will be down, injuries will be down, and so we benefit from all of that. Um, I would point out that there is no relationship between, or no linkage between electric drivetrains and autonomous vehicles. Autonomous works just as well for diesel and petrol powered vehicles as well. Mm -hmm. uh, the second part of your question is, what's my confidence in, or do I think, do I agree with Tony that there'll be a shift to uh, shared ownership rather than private ownership. Um, I don't know. My guess is that it'll be mixed. If your parents with young kids, your car is more than something you use to get from A to B. It's something where you're storing car seats and toys and spare snacks and all sorts of things. Yes. And I think people will be reluctant to give that up. Um, so it, I think there will, of course, be a large move towards shared vehicles. I just don't see it going 100%. Will it go 70%, 50%, 30%? I wouldn't have a clue. I also don't think that it's a five or a 10-year transition to autonomous vehicles. Um, these, this is a complex technology that requires not only the vehicles, but the rules and the infrastructure, the ability for the city itself to talk to the cars and the roads and the signals and all those sorts of things to um, be intertwined and interconnected. So you're looking at two things that have to converge, autonomous vehicles and interconnectedness. We'll get there. It's going to, oh, and a third thing is precision GPS, which we've committed to in this country. 
and within a small number of years, maybe a handful of years, we will have 10 centimeter accuracy. That's the width of your hand, you know, from the tip of your little finger to your thumb when they're stretched out. Accuracy, which is fantastic across the country, and will be three centimeter accuracy in the cities where there's mobile phone coverage. So we're looking at developing the autonomous vehicle capability, the interconnectedness between the vehicles and, and other vehicles and between the vehicles and the city network. And we're looking at the need for precision GPS. Uh, it's, all on, it's, it's all underway, but it's a massive amount of work that needs to be done. And I, I just can't imagine it being s substantial in 10 years, but it is going in that direction. And also just not having just that, the technologies, but as you point out, having the rules and regulations and the government policies that go with it. So yes, I can imagine that'll be um, take a while. And um, I'm looking forward to having more accurate GPS because at, at the moment it puts my house about five kilometres away from where it actually is. So um, that'll be very handy. Sounds like so. you need a new iPhone. That's, that's inexplicable. <laughs> or a new house. You have to converge the two one way or another. I have to move it to where Google tells me it is. <laughs> Look, Alan, I've really enjoyed um, this conversation and um, thank you very much and um, good luck with everything in the future. Thank you Giles. And that was Chief Scientist Alan Finkel. I do have to admit to making one error during that uh, recording. It was not the Australian Academy of, sorry, the Australian Council of Learned Academies that did the report that Alan presented to the COAG Energy Ministers meeting in August. It was in fact the Hydrogen Strategy Group. So apologies for that. After the recording, Alan did make this fascinating little point. He says that hydrogen is actually the lightest element on the periodic table, and its atomic weight is 1.008. So think about those numbers, 10,08. It is the same day, in numerical terms, that he presented the report to the COAG Energy Minister's meeting, the 10th of August. So Alan suggested, if the hydrogen economy does in fact emerge after decades of talking about and decades of promise, he would like the 10th of August to be hitherto known as Hydrogen Day. My name is Giles Parkinson. Thanks for listening to The Driven Podcast. Bye for now.